Just let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 today, and you can find uh, this text on page 973 of a Pew Bible. But let me encourage you, let me invite you to uh, look at God's Word with me, to follow along as we invite Him to speak to us, as we ask uh, the Lord to lead us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to conform us more and more into the image and character uh, of His Son, our Savior. Uh, but we're looking at the book of Hebrews. We've been looking at the back book of Hebrews over the last uh, couple weeks. We're in a mini-series uh, titled, Jesus is Better. And we've seen already that He is uh, a better form of knowing God, that God makes Himself known to us through the person, uh, through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, we've also seen that Jesus is uh, a better priest. He's a permanent priest. Unlike human priests that went before him and paved the way and prepared us for his arrival, uh, he is a priest uh, who is flawless, who is sinless, who lives on and on forever and ever. And now this week, as we look at God's word, we see that he is also uh, a reigning king. He is enthroned on high. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. Uh, He's worthy of our devotion. And so we invite him to speak to us this morning through God's holy word. As you find your place in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, let me invite you uh, once again to join me standing, uh, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Let's hear from the Lord. Text reads this way. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, that you are a God who has made yourself known to us. And Father, we thank you for the chance to gather this morning to read your word, to proclaim it, to hear it. Father, guide us, instruct us by the presence and power of your spirit through the preaching of your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In light of this text today, in light of uh, our text in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning and uh, the content of this message, I want to begin by posing this question. Uh, why uh, do we come to church? Why do we come to church? Why do we gather as believers week after week after week and worship God, sing His praises, open His word, fellowship in His name? Of course, of course we, we know not everybody does this. We know we'll likely have some guests with us next Sunday and we celebrate their arrival. We may not see them again until Easter 2020. We certainly hope that's not the case. But uh, for the vast majority of us here this morning who are gathered here today, uh, why do we keep coming back? Why do we keep gathering? Well, if you come to church to uh, appease God or to try to earn His favor or perhaps to feel better about yourself, uh, I'm glad that you're coming, but might I suggest that you're coming uh, for the wrong reasons? In other words, you're seeking after something that you can never attain on your own, that you can never attain by human effort. Religious effort cannot save you. 
Bible is abundantly clear that we cannot save ourselves. We need someone else to save us. We need someone else to rescue us. We need a Savior. We need a rescuer. And Jesus Christ is our rescuer. Now, unless we're just steeped in that sort of language, we automatically uh, react against it because it's, uh, it confronts us. It confronts us in our sin and our pride. We want to think that we can do this. We want to think that we have this figured out. We want to think that we are good enough, that we can somehow accomplish things on our own. Of course, we were reminded, those of us that live in North Shelby County, we were reminded early this morning that we're not in control, that we are dependent on another, that we are not ultimately sovereign, that we are not all-powerful, but there is one who is And when it comes to our spiritual situation, our spiritual condition before this most high God, only Christ Jesus can save us. Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. And He's also a sovereign King. Christ is the all-sufficient Savior and sovereign King. I think that's the point that Hebrews is driving home here. You see, verse 11, day after day and again and again describe the monotonous and repetitive practice of religion. And last week, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 7, we, uh, we saw from God's word that uh, unlike uh, every other priest who preceded him, uh, Jesus uh, was flawless. They were flawed, but he is flawed. Every human priest, every pope, every pastor, every person, every president is flawed. Every human is. And so priests that came before the coming of this priest, before our great high priest, before our permanent priest, priests who preceded Jesus the Christ had to make sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus is flawless. And the priests who preceded him were also mortal. So they died and they had to be replaced. But Jesus rose from the dead and he lives forever and ever. As one who is both fully God and fully man. Jesus was perfectly suited. He is perfectly suited to mediate between God and man. You see, as one of us, the fullness of God in human flesh, He is able to represent us. He could represent us. And because He always obeyed God, He obeyed God always, fully living up to God's standard. Living the kind of human life that God intended for all of us to live. Because Jesus accomplished that task, because He lived a perfect and sinless life, Uh, He is able to mediate for us. You see, we didn't live that kind of life. None of us have. We didn't measure up. We transgressed. We came up short. We disobeyed. We rebelled just as Adam did. But we inherited our propensity to sin from him. And ever since, church, we've lived in bondage to sin. Have you ever tried uh, in all your strength uh, to resist something? I mean, something that was especially challenging for you. I don't know what that is. Perhaps a certain temptation. Maybe it's a struggle with an addiction. Maybe uh, it's to, to accomplish a certain diet. Maybe it's to take some particular food that you absolutely love out of uh, your regular routine of eating. And I'm willing to bet that at least on the first go round, uh, you may have been able to do that a time or two. But ultimately, what happened? I'm willing to bet you gave in. You see, that's called bondage. And Jesus uh, came to deliver us from bondage. The gospel isn't about trying harder. It's about being rescued. One of the ways the Bible describes salvation is deliverance from bondage. Liberation from sin. 
see, God's deliverance of the enslaved Israelites in Egypt provides a picture of this. The theological term for this is redemption. Friends, this is what our Savior has done for us. Christ has already redeemed us fully. He has already redeemed us fully. This book is driving home. The book of Hebrews is driving home the spiritual reality that Jesus has accomplished salvation for us. He has done this, not us. He did it. It is done. And so unlike the priests who had to continually offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the place of guilty sinners, verse 12, Jesus offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. One sacrifice that covers it all. One sacrifice at a particular moment in time that covers people for all time, covers believers for all time. One sacrifice for all. And unlike the temporary human priests who stand, verse 11, the position of work, performing their religious role over and over and over and over again, serving a particular and repetitive function for a limited time, our great high priest, verse 11, sat down. He sat down. They stood. He sat down. The position of completion and rest when His perfect and permanent sacrifice had been made for us. You see, church, the Bible declares that this has already happened. Christ has fully secured our forgiveness through a single sacrifice. He has accomplished our atonement fully and finally. The Gospel declares that Christ has done it for us. He has taken the due punishment for our sin, the punishment that we deserve. And in exchange, He has given us His righteousness, His right standing before God Most High. As a church, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've you've been redeemed. We've been uh, redeemed. We've, We've been delivered from bondage. Christ's completed work means never again does blood have to be spilt for our salvation. And so we don't come into this place today. We don't come and gather today bearing the blood sacrifices. It is complete. It is certain. It is a present reality based upon a past event. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, in Jesus, we have redemption. He says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. We have redemption, a present possession based upon a past event says similarly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, for Jesus, or uh, God in Christ, has rescued us. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have what? We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so friends, we don't, we don't come to church to earn forgiveness. We come and we hear about this message of forgiveness. We come and we hear about the grace of God Most High. And we come to worship the One who has forgiven us. And so our gathering as followers of Jesus Christ, as as children of God, as those who've been saved by God's grace, becomes far more about a person than it is about performing any particular task. Of course, there are things that we do when we gather. But ultimately, our aim is to glorify God Most High, to worship a risen Savior our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in our church mission statement, we begin by saying we exist to glorify God. This is something that looks like some, there's some things that we do as a result of that. There's some ways that we strive to glorify Him, but we exist to glorify God. Only Christ can save us. And friends, He has saved us. And so we come to church to celebrate that forgiveness 
come to church, to celebrate redemption, to praise our Redeemer. If, if, if He were just a Savior, He would be worthy of our thanksgiving. Certainly we would owe Him thanksgiving, great gratitude for saving us, but friends, Jesus is not just our Savior. He is also the King. And so we praise Him. Christ is the all-sufficient Savior and sovereign King who is reigning on high right now. Christ is now reigning over us in glory. You see, when the author of Hebrews states that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, verse 12, he's speaking of Christ's enthronement of His exaltation, saying something that He's already said and saying something that He's going to say again. In other words, this is a central and consistent piece of His message. How do we know this? Listen to the consistency with which He writes. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The author begins and says, The Son, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. He writes, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Then again, in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, now the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 10, verse 12, our text for this morning, he says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And again, in chapter 12, verse 2, he writes, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and did what? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Apostle Paul writes it this way to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above Every name. That's Paul's way of stating the same truth that the author of Hebrews is stating here. That he was exalted. That he was uh, taken into glory. That he was enthroned. An exalted Savior sitting on the throne. Why? Because he is the King. You see, Christ Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Our Savior. And he is the sovereign King. To say that he is sitting at the right hand of God is to give him the position of highest honor. To give Him the position of supreme majesty and dignity. It is saying more about His status and His identity than about His present activity. As we learned last week, He is right now representing us. And He is interceding for us and residing in us by the presence of His Spirit. This is a comforting truth. We know that we live in a world that is often unpredictable. We were reminded of that this morning. We know that evil abounds on uh, every corner. We know that this is a dangerous place. We know that tragedies often surface in this life. And yet there is a God, the God of all comfort, who rules and reigns on high. He is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is not idle. Jesus is not idle any more than God is idle. He is alive. He is active. And He is at work today. But His sacrifice of atonement is complete. He has already accomplished our salvation through His death and His resurrection. And so we gather, church, on this Sunday. And we gather this week. We gather this day on on this Palm Sunday. And we remember the crowd's desire for a king on that first Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. It's the week of 
Passover. Messianic expectations were high. There was an excitement in the air as Jews uh, traveled to Jerusalem for this festival, this celebration, this remembrance uh, of what God had had done, this this time of worship. We began to think about the excitement that that perhaps was in the air. We, We might think of a 4th of July celebration here in America. As we come together, as we unite as as Americans, reminding us of our heritage and perhaps even exciting us about the future. We get together and eat hot dogs and shoot fireworks with folks that we might, the rest of the time of the year, not have anything in common. We we might not associate with, but, but we have something significant in common that we can celebrate together on such a time as that. And in Jerusalem, the Jews were not waving flags, but they were waving palm branches which some have suggested was a symbol of their national identity. And so there was excitement, there was thankfulness, but there was also longing because they lacked a king. And perhaps you know the story, foreign invaders had long overthrown King David's throne, and at present it was the Romans who were the oppressive and sovereign power, the dominant power in the area. Would this be the year that God sent the promised Messiah King to restore the kingdom of Israel? And you know they hoped it was. I almost imagine one of those travelers in that caravan saying this fellow named Jesus from Nazareth. But he's in the lineage of, of King David. And they say that he's a miracle worker. He restores sight to the blind. He heals the lame. He teaches with authority and power. He teaches with wisdom. He, he doesn't back away from the authorities. He's not afraid to confront the, uh, the Pharisees. He's gentle. Yet he's firm. He's not afraid. There's no fear in his eyes for he acts as if he's on a mission. He's like us. But he's greater than us. Maybe he's the one. Maybe this man is the one that we need to rally behind. We need to make him king. Let's crown him king and revolt against the Romans. And suddenly uh, someone else in the traveling caravan shouts out, Look, there he is. Here comes Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, they shouted. Save us. Be our hero. Be the messenger, the Messiah sent from God. And it's almost as if you can hear Jesus responding. I am. I am saving you. This is the path I must take. For you. And so he did. Of course, from our perspective, he he did. Jesus accomplished our salvation. He redeemed us. He died for us. But the gospel isn't just that he died for us. It's also that he gives his life to us. Jesus gave his life for us and to us. He has done this. Christ has already redeemed us fully. He's now reigning over us in glory and He will return to judge His enemies and restore His people. Friends, Christ will return. We take His word to heart. If we believe the Scriptures, we have to claim that Christ Jesus will return one day. He will return to judge His enemies and to restore His people. The text says He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, And since that time, Since he sat down, since he was enthroned, since he completed his task and was exalted, he waits. The Son of God waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect 
forever those who are being made holy. What's he waiting on? What's Jesus waiting on? He's waiting for the right time. He's waiting for God's perfect time. He's waiting for the fullness of time to come and to judge those who oppose him and reject him and to restore all those who love and serve him. And this time he won't come riding on a donkey. He won't come headed to the cross. He'll come on a white stallion as a conquering king, the king of all kings to fulfill, to judge and to restore. He will come, friends, to usher in eternity. For though we have already been redeemed by Jesus, liberated from bondage to sin through the atoning sacrifice of our Savior, we still await. There's more to it than this. We still await the consummation of our salvation. You see, a salvation that is anchored in the past, Christ has accomplished it. He has liberated us from sin. He has reconciled us to God Most High. Anchored in the past, lived out in the present as we walk by faith in Him, as we trust in Jesus, yet it's oriented toward the future. Anchored in the past, lived in the present, oriented toward the future, the day of His return when evil will be destroyed and the church will be united in a joyous and unending celebration with our Savior and King, Jesus the Christ. In other words, there's no greater or more significant truth for us than what Jesus accomplished already at Calvary, but we still await. We still await and we still anticipate the eternal ramifications of Christ's work on our behalf. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you also, church, he says, You also were included in Christ. In other words, you were counted among his people when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, when you trusted him, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of God's glory. In other words, we have already been redeemed, yet we await the return of the King. We, uh, we await the day our redemption will uh, truly and fully be felt and known by us, but only known by those who respond to God's mercy. So friend, respond to His mercy. Respond to the mercy of God. Respond to the grace of God. Respond to the gift of salvation in in Jesus. That is a merciful God. And though the author of Hebrews is recounting this wonderful truth, the wonderful truth of God's rescuing work in Jesus Christ, there's also a warning here. There's a warning. And the warning is this, that not all have been redeemed. Not all have been rescued. Uh, There are enemies of Jesus. There are enemies of the gospel. The text says that those enemies will become Christ's footstool, meaning they will be forced into submission. You see, one day they will acknowledge that Christ Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior and the sovereign King. But on that day, friends, it will be too late. It will be too late. When will that day be? So begs, we need to know, when, when is that going to be? We, we don't know. But we do know that the Lord is patient. It could happen any moment. It could happen any day. We know that He delays, that He tarries, because He desires His enemies to repent and respond to His mercy. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow. He's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you. Patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone 
to come to repentance. You see, such is His mercy. Such is God's mercy. Have you responded to God's mercy? The text says those who respond to God's mercy by trusting in Jesus are set apart as God's people, i.e. they are holy, verse 14, and made perfect forever, meaning made fit for God's presence. To respond to His mercy is to repent. It is to confess sin. It is to turn from sin, to repent and to receive Jesus in faith, to believe that Christ Jesus is your all-sufficient Savior and Sovereign King. Have you responded to His mercy? Friend, respond to His mercy. Receive the gift of salvation by turning to Jesus in faith. And once you have, once you have turned and trusted Christ, once you know that your eternity is secure, once you know that your forgiveness is certain, once you know that you have been reconciled to God Most High through the blood of Jesus Christ, then give your life to engage in God's mission. Engage in God's mission. Why? Because eternity hangs in the balance. Friends, eternity is at stake. Many, countless, numerous people do not know that Christ is the all-sufficient Savior and Sovereign King. And so we must make it our aim to tell them. For the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, we believers, we Christians, we who've responded to the mercy of God, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, he says. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on uh, Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, God's plan for the world to hear His gospel of grace involves you and it involves me. This infinitely holy and just and righteous and glorious God not only saves us, but He calls us. He invites us. He calls us and He equips us to serve Him, to be used by Him. For his great glory. In other words, we are his plan. We are his plan to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. So, what does this mean? How can we engage in God's mission? Let me give you a few easy and practical steps. Certainly not a comprehensive list of many ways that we can engage in God's mission. Let me give you just a few. The first would be to give to our Annie Armstrong Easter offering, to support evangelism to support church planting and revitalization across our continent in some of the most unreached areas. To give above and beyond for the work of the gospel going forth in frontier areas. Of course, you can do that by designating that on your offering, giving with the envelopes that you can find in the pew racks. You can do that online on our website. Let's engage in God's mission by giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Secondly, This is Holy Week, meaning next Sunday is Easter Sunday. We know that we have an opportunity that we will likely brush up shoulders against and encounter faces next week that we might not encounter any other time of year. We know that many might be open to attending a church service and hearing the gospel this time of year, this week particularly, that might not be any other time. So another way that you can practically engage in God's mission is invite someone to one of our Easter services next Sunday. Invite someone that you know is unchurched. Someone that perhaps doesn't know Christ to come with you or to meet you, to join you in the beauty. Come and worship, to hear the word, to hear the gospel, to come hear the gospel next week. 8.30, 10.45, 
doesn't suit their fancy and they're early birds, 6.30 sunrise out in the parking lot. You invite them to come. And finally, closely related to that, because of the season it is, the time of the year, we know that many are open to conversations about Christianity during these next few days that might not be willing to engage any other time of year. So look for on-roads. Let's look for on-roads. Let's be intentional about weaving the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Easter, the hope of eternity into everyday conversations. I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. Maybe you have a family gathering around Easter. I know some do. Not everyone does. Maybe you have a gathering where you're with cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and great aunts and and, and nephews and nieces and and folks that you love but you don't see very often and folks that perhaps are not always in church, maybe rarely in church, maybe unbelievers. Maybe it means saying something to Uncle Jimmy about that. It means engaging in that conversation. Say, Uncle Jimmy, I, I love that we get together this time. Why do we do that on Easter? What's so significant about this holiday? Do you know the meaning of Easter? On road to the gospel. Maybe it means a conversation with a neighbor or a friend about the children's activities that you've engaged in. Easter egg hunts. Something you do together. An opportunity to to weave the gospel of Jesus Christ into everyday conversations. May we be people who first respond to the mercy of God. If you haven't responded to the mercy of God, respond to the mercy of God today. Mercy that He has made available and known through His Word to you and to me. Respond to His mercy. And then may we be a people who engage in God's mission now and forevermore. Now and until our Lord and Savior, our all-sufficient Savior and Sovereign King returns for us. Amen. Father, may it be so in our lives. May we be people who who trust in You. Lord, who see our sin for what it is. Stained before the Most High God. And Father, may we repent of it. May we turn away from it. May we turn away from sin and self, our own pride. May we humbly bow before You and recognize that You are our Maker, our Sustainer, and our Redeemer through Jesus Christ. Father, may we trust in Jesus. May we proclaim the riches of His grace. May we live our lives for His glory. Father, would You lead us to live for You. Convict us where we are in error and Excite us about what you have done for us. Lord, you have rescued us. You have saved us by your grace. Made forgiveness available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we respond to your mercy. Lord, I pray that if there are any gathered among us today that do not know your saving mercy, who have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, that today would be the day. Father, I pray that you would convict them in the error of their ways. And Lord, that you would draw them to your mercy and that they would find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And Father, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would live lives that are centered around your gospel. Lord, that this message of salvation, that this hope of eternity would spur us on to engage others with the truth of your word. Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace, give us patience. And Father, we thank you that you promised to go with us, that Jesus says, and surely he is with us in spirit always to the very end of the age. Lord, may we 
May we engage those around us in the power and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, may our lives lift high the cross. Lord, as we respond to the truth of your word, now lead us and be glorified in us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.